with you, I invite you to open up Second Chronicles, and we're going to pick up in chapter two, Second Chronicles. And uh, as we take a look, here's the deal, man. We've come to the point in the in the history of Israel when we read First and Second Kings, which is the history that we're going over again in Chronicles. The difference between First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, a hundred years, and Ezra leading the people out of captivity is rehearsing their history again to him. And he's laying out the things with a different perspective. See, the perspective now is, listen, if you, if you as a nation will delight in the Lord, then I want you to see all the things that God does when we delight in him. He just finished rehearsing the history of David. What do we call David? A man what? After God's own heart, right? A man who was so uh, after the Lord that that's, that's how we term him. Not that he was perfect, but he delighted in the Lord. You know, he was looking uh, at ways to please the Lord. And one of those ways that he wanted to please God was to build God a permanent dwelling, right? Prior to that time, they had a tent. And, and so David wants to build God a permanent dwelling. And God says, no, I want your son to do it. I want your son to do it. Because he's going to be a man of peace. And when we look at the example, listen, when Jesus came the first time, he did all the battle. We often look at Jesus in the, in the second coming as, you know, set for battle. There's not much of a fight then. That's not the battle. The battle was the cross. He, he fought the battle and won the right so that when he returns, he will come as a man of peace. They may bring arms against him, but it's a short battle, right? It's a short battle. The Bible tells us that he destroys his enemies with the sword that comes out of his mouth. Now I want you to think about God for a moment. Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning, God created from nothing the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? He spoke it into being, right? So how does he undo it? He speaks it into unbeing. It's a short battle, right? If you're coming to God and he just speaks and you're not there anymore. Short battle. Quick. He comes. Peace. Kingdom. Sets up his kingdom. And there is righteous rule. And an opportunity for man to do what Jesus talked about in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus said that the Father is looking for worshipers. Right? People who will worship him how? In spirit and in truth. Right? So he's looking for people to worship him in spirit and and in truth, it's an interesting story in John chapter 4, because when you look at John chapter 4, what you see is Jesus choosing to go to Samaria, which nobody ever did, sending his disciples to go get food, and the, he is introduced to a woman who's come late in the day to draw, probably because the other women talk about her all the time, and she doesn't want to hear it, so she comes late in the day where she can be alone. And as she comes up to the well, Jesus is standing there, and she's kind of ignoring him because Samaritans ignored Jews. That's how it worked. Jews ignored Samaritans. There wouldn't have been any conversation. But Jesus asked her for a drink. And she's shocked. Why are you talking to me? And Jesus said, if you know who I was, you'd ask me for water. Because the water that I give you, if you drink of that water, you'll never thirst again. Not only that, it will spring up in your soul as a fountain everlasting. Wow, she says, you don't have anything to draw with. How are you going to give me that water? How can you do that? Jesus said, well, go get your husband and I'll tell you. Oh, I don't have a husband. Well, you speak the truth. You don't have a husband. You've had... Four husbands, and the man you're sleeping with right now is not your husband. Now all of a sudden she got religious, right? I perceive you're a prophet. I perceive that you're a prophet, Lord. Well, Jesus didn't change subject. He, He followed her, right? What did she say? She said, your people say we should worship in Jerusalem, and then we say you should worship here on Mount Gerizim. Where should people really worship? And Jesus told her, said, time is coming when you're not going to worship on that mountain or this one. The Father 
He's looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and truth, in reality. For those people for whom it's not just an obligation, it's not just a ritual, it's not just a thing you do. What was Jesus doing that whole time? Look at the story. He was making her a worshiper. When she left, she didn't get any water. She didn't take her bucket with her. What did she take with her? The greatest treasure she ever had in her life, Jesus Christ. And where did she go? To everyone she could find. And what did she tell them? you got to come talk to this guy who told me everything I ever did. you got to see this. you got to know this. And then the disciples come back. And they come back. Jesus say, Jesus, we brought lunch. And he says, that's all right, I already ate. You ate. When you got, where did he get food? How did he get food to eat? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. You remember? My, my will or my food is to do the will of him who sent me. To do what God sent him to do. And then he said to them, do not say four months and then the harvest. Jesus said, I say to you, the fields are white right now fields are white they're ready pray the lord of the harvest send laborers to the field the whole purpose of what jesus is doing is saying i'm here to create to make worshipers and while you guys were going and getting lunch i made one out of a samaritan woman whose life was all messed up but now her life has found meaning because she has found the creator of the universe, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. And what did she do? She brought all kind of people to him, didn't she? she people kept coming and kept coming. Jesus had to leave Samaria until Acts chapter 8 when Philip goes back and then the revival kicks off again. All because... A woman at the well understood what it was, finally caught the the idea of delighting in the Lord, living for Him. So Solomon, we come back to our story, Solomon, the the man of peace, the king of peace, is going to build a house for what? For worship. For worship. What's he going to use? Man, piles and piles of gold. And piles and piles of silver and bronze and everything points to something. Everything pictures something else. But what is the purpose in it all? What does it all point to? It all points to Christ. Temple worship in the sacrificial system was all about coming to the cross of Jesus and worshiping there for the one who took our sins away. Isn't that what they did at the temple? Same kind of a thing. We're going to take it, have an opportunity tonight to take a look at it. In chapter 2 of Second of Chronicles, we get to see a letter between Solomon and Hiram, the king of Tyre and the king of Israel. Look, it says, Solomon determined to build the temple for the name of the Lord. For the name of the Lord. The royal house for himself. So he's doing two things, right? He's doing two things. Every once in a while you get a glimpse of the issues in Solomon's life. He's building a place of worship for God, a house, a temple, and he's building a palace for himself. Interesting side note, he's going to spend seven years building the temple and 14 years building his palace. Kind of interesting concept, right? There's got to be a story in there somewhere. Half as much time devoted to the house now david boy david was was a man who wanted to go after the lord all the time but we see solomon's life it struggles don't he he struggles with having this opportunity having this worship having this stuff and and wanting something else he's a divided heart he becomes a picture of a divided heart a heart that's not fully to the lord and he doesn't finish well david finishes well he's an undivided heart What does God want us to have? A divided heart or an undivided heart? Undivided. Holy. You're either holy His or you're not His at all. Don't say I'm half His. I'm a quarter His. I'm 33 and a third percent His. 
then you're not His. All or nothing. That's what God wants. Well, here's what he writes to, to Hiram of Tyre. He says, As you have dealt with David my father, and sent him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me, for I am building a temple for the name of the Lord my God, to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense, that's a picture of prayer, for continual showbread, that's a picture of provision, for the burnt offerings morning and evening, those are pictures of consecration unto God, on the Sabbaths, the new moons, and on the set feasts of the Lord our God, this is an ordinance forever to Israel. So look what he says we're going to do. We're dedicating it to him. It'll be a place of prayer. That's what the sweet incense was, prayer. It'll be a, a place for continual showbread. That shows that showbread simply means the bread of his presence. It speaks of his provision. Jesus said, I am the what? Bread of life, right? He's the bread of life. He's the bread of life. Jesus said, man, always to pray and not lose heart. The attitude of prayer, the attitude of seeing God's provision. And then the burnt offering spoke of consecration to God. All His, right? If you were on the burnt offering, it burnt. It's gone. There's no peace left. It's gone. Total consecration to God. And he said, And the temple which I build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But look what he says in verse 6, But who is able to build him a temple? Since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Who am I then that I should build him a temple, except to burn a sacrifice before him? Solomon understood God didn't live in the house. The house became a central point of worship, For the people of God. A central place to come. And the first thing they come to, we'll talk in a moment, we'll get to the next chapter. The first thing they come to is a place of sacrifice. First thing you see, place of sacrifice. How do you come to Jesus? Jesus becomes a picture of the temple. How do you come to Jesus? Same way. The place of sacrifice, which is what? The cross, right? The cross. For them it was a place of sacrifice, the altar. For us it's a place of sacrifice, the cross. Same, it's a picture. That the, that the Lord is painting out for us. He says in verse 7, Therefore send me at once a man, I need a guy, skillful to work in gold and silver and bronze, in iron and purple and crimson, in blue, who has skill to engrave with the skillful men who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, who David my father provided. He says, look, I don't got a guy. I need a guy. When they built the temple, remember there was a guy, I think his name was Bezaliel. Bezaliel was specially gifted by God to do all the artistry. Now Solomon wants to build this incredible temple. He says, man, I need a man. I need a guy. I don't have a guy here. So he, he hollers out to the king of Tyre. It's interesting uh, who the king of Tyre gives him. We'll look at that in just a sec. Also send me cedar and cypress and algum logs from Lebanon. For I know that your servants have skilled to cut timber in Lebanon. And my servants will be with your servants. You're better at cutting down these logs. So give me some guys to help me out in these in, in this endeavor. He says in verse 9, To prepare timber for me in abundance for the temple, which I'm about to build, it will be great and wonderful. And indeed, I will give to your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, 20,000 baths of oil. So he says, I'm going to pay you. Here's what I'm going to give you. I want to trade. I need limber, or lumber, and I need a guy who's able to work it. So Hiram, king of Tyre, answered. He said to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Now I want you to notice something. He used the covenantial name of God. That's kind of an interesting point. Hiram, the king of Tyre, is a pagan king, but he knows God's name. He uses Yahweh. He uses the name of God. The name of God. Hiram would have been a guy that David dealt with quite often. Perhaps David introduced him to the Lord. I don't know. But I see him using God's name here. Capital L-O-R-D. That's the proper name of God. We don't know it anymore. But Hiram, the king of Tyre, did. All we have is YHVH, right? The Tetragrammaton, the Yahweh, how it all went together, the consonants, we don't know, but he did. 
He laid it out for him. Hiram also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Again, the covenantal name of God. Be the Lord God of Israel who made heaven and earth, and he has given King David a wise son endowed with prudence and understanding. Wow, Hiram is attributing all of creation to the Lord God Almighty, to Yahweh, to Jehovah. He uses God's name, not just a random word for God. He uses his name. He says uh, in verse 13, And now I, I, ha- I have sent a skillful man, endowed with understanding, Huram, my master craftsman, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre, skilled to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, wood, purple, blue, fine linen, and crimson, and to make any engraving, and to accomplish any plan which he may be given with your skillful man and with the skillful men of my Lord David your father. Now therefore the wheat and the barley and the oil and the wine which the Lord has spoken of, let him send to his servants and we'll cut the wood from Lebanon and as much as you need and we'll bring it to you by rafts by the sea of Joppa and you will carry it to Jerusalem. So he provides a craftsman, Huram, Huram who is Jewish. His mother was of the tribe of Dan. Your Jewish ancestry travels through your mother. Kind of an interesting point. Opposite of the way we think. If your mom was Jewish, you're Jewish. Your dad didn't matter. Your mother did. Huram had a Jewish mom and a Gentile father. And he becomes the master craftsman used by God to build the temple. It says, then Solomon numbered all the aliens. These are all the people who didn't have citizenship in Israel. Who were in the land of Israel after the census in which David his father had numbered them and found there to be 153,600. And he made 70,000 of them bearers of burdens and 80,000 stone cutters in the mountain and 3,600 overseers to make the people Work. So he built a working company out of all the guys who didn't have citizenship in Israel. The first group becomes the, the burden bearers. I, I see those in a spiritual sense as the prayer warriors. That's the prayer warriors. They, they bear the burdens of others and lift them up to the Lord. And then you had 80,000 stonecutters. Oh, stonecutters. The Bible talks about stonecutters. It gives a, the example of discipleship. That we are living stones next to one another, rubbing off the, the rough edges of one another. The, the disciples, the prayer warriors, and the 3,600 overseers, that's the same word for shepherd. It's a picture of pastors and disciples and, and prayer warriors all coming together to build the temple of God. Do you know the temple of God? There's three different parts of the temple of God that the Bible talks about in the New Testament. It says the body of Christ is the temple of God. The body of Christ corporately. That's the church. It says the body of the believer is the temple of God. You and I individually, our bodies, the temple of God. And in Ephesians, it goes on to tell us again, corporately, the body of Christ it's the temple of God. The New Testament talks about it. That we are that temple. That we individually, that we corporately are the temple of God today. Then they had a building. Now it's us. What's the difference? It's still the same requirement. What was the temple for? Worship. To worship God. To delight in the Lord. To go after Him with an undivided heart. The same thing that it is for today. Chapter 3 says, So Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. It says Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is famous for something else. What else is it famous for? Mount Moriah is the place where David had called the census and he saw the angel sheath his sword when God was destroying uh, the people of Israel for the sin of David. And so David said, here's where I'll build my temple. What else is it famous for? Fella, you might remember, his name's Abraham. You might remember Abraham had a son. Do you remember? Two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But the Lord said, Abraham, take the son which you love 
to the mountain that I will show you. And the scripture tells in Genesis 22, when Abraham came to Mount Moriah, he went up on Mount Moriah and offered his son there as a sacrifice to the Lord. The story of the sacrifice. Remember, Abraham's going to kill his son. God stops him and says, now I know that you fear me, that you love me more than your son. He provided a ram in the thicket. They had a sacrifice that could be offered. He offered that sacrifice and came down. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yideh. The Lord will provide himself the sacrifice. And he said, for in this mountain it shall be provided. Later on, they build the temple there. What did they do at the temple? They had the symbolism of sacrifice, right? The altar, the lambs coming up, being sacrificed on the altar. When they, when they built the temple, you know, they flattened out Mount Moriah, right? They, they made it flat. So in order to make it flat, they had a, a quarry. The quarry was a little ways up from where that uh, flat spot was. So they went to this place and they cut out the stone. They cut a notch into the mountain. You guys with me? And they sent that stone to build the temple. Some of them stones are 500 tons and greater. That's pretty big stones, by the way. When they notched out all this and they cut out all this stone, it created a place called a quarry. Whenever they wanted to put someone to death after those days, they would go where it was really easy to find the stone. Now, in a rush job, you could find stones everywhere, but if they had time, they would take them to the quarry. It began to be called by another name. As all the stones were cut out, it left the look of a face of a skull on the side of the quarry. So they began to call it Skull Mountain or Golgotha. A little while later, when Jesus came and they took him to sacrifice, the quarry was outside of the city. Like the scripture said, he would be put to death outside the city. Where did they take him? To the place of the skull. On what mountain? Mount Moriah. On Mount Moriah, where Abraham had prophesied thousands of years earlier. He said, Yahweh Yideh, the Lord will provide himself the sacrifice and on this mountain where I almost sacrificed my son, God's going to do it with his. Same mountain. Same place. Same picture. Same examples throughout Scripture. That's what we're reading about. Solomon started on Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to his father David, and the place where David prepared the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day of the second month, in the fourth year of his reign. This is the foundation which Solomon laid for the building. The house of God, the length was 60 cubits. Uh, by the cubit, uh, according to the former measure, and the width, 20 cubits. Well, let's take a look at it. I actually got a couple of sides. Cindy, you want to throw that first one up? Roughly what we're looking at, 90 feet long. This is the building. 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet it's roughly double the size of the tabernacle this is the the beginning the vestibule that was in the front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits across the width of the house and the height was 120 he overlaid the inside with pure gold so the inside of that entire building was pure gold what that must have looked like? Incredibly costly and exorbitant and extravagant because it was a place of what? Worship. Is that the kind of worship that we bring? Extravagant, costly. That our attitude when we come to the Lord. We'll see in a moment. Even the nails. Incredible, incredible. It says, The larger room he paneled with cypress, which he overlaid with fine gold, and he carved palm trees and chain work on it. 
palm trees. The palm trees they, they, that they put up would be date trees. And the date trees would speak of fruitfulness. And the chains would speak of unity. So you'd have chains speaking of unity, because where there's unity, there's fruitfulness. The, the date palms with big bunches of dates in the clusters. You'll, you'll see it if you ever have opportunity to go to Israel. You'll be able to see some pictures of, of what that would have been like. He decorated the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was gold from Parvaim. Parvaim was very fine gold. He overlaid the house, the beams, the doorposts, its walls, and doors with gold, and he carved cherubim on the walls. So he got cherubim, angels, carved into the walls. Pure gold. From the outside, just stone. Kind of plain looking, somewhat, from the outside. But when you went inside, whoo, man. You ever walked in a room with gold floor, gold walls, gold, gold ceiling? I can't even imagine what that looked like. Can't even imagine. Had to be amazing. He made the most holy place. His length was according to its width. So the temple was divided into two parts. Two parts. Remember, it's 90 cubits long, or 90 feet long, okay? So the first 60 feet is called the holy place. The holy place. If you look in the picture, I don't know if you can tell, but there's a number four up there. The number four is the veil. The veil partitioned off the last uh, uh, third of the building, which was exactly square. That becomes the holy of holies. The most holy place, the high priest could only enter there once a year. Every day the priest could enter the other part because that was where they offered their prayers. That's where they had the bread of His presence. That's where they had the menorahs, the light. Each one speaking of Christ. Didn't Jesus say, I'm the light of the world? Didn't He say, I'm the bread of life? Every single aspect within the holy place spoke of Christ. All of it. Jesus said, I am the door. Do you know right there the the vegetable, that opening... It would have the exact same veil across it that the veil was in front of the Holy of Holies. That veil is made out of incredible materials. That's where you had the the blue and the scarlet woven together a hand's breadth thick. So whatever your hand width is, that's how thick that curtain was. And that curtain was ornate, beautiful. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, in the book of Galatians, that the veil is His flesh. So the same material used for the veil is used for the door. What did Jesus say? I am the door. No man comes to the Father except how? By me. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that the building materials for the, for the curtain at the door and the curtain going into the Holy of Holies would be the same material because Galatians tells us that material is the body of Christ. How do we come to the Father? Through the body of Christ, through His sacrifice, right? So this is the first, the holy place, then the holy of holies. All gorgeous, all gold, incredibly beautiful. But listen to this, look at it, it says, uh, He made the holy place, the most holy place, perfect square, 20 cubits by 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. So 20 cubits, uh, that's roughly 30 foot by 30 foot. 600 cubits would be somewhere in a neighborhood. Each talent, 600 talents, each talent was somewhere in a neighborhood of 175 pounds. So 600 chunks of 175 pounds of pure gold was used to inlay that area, just to inlay the walls of the Holy of Holies. Look at 9. The weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold. They used gold nails. They made the nails out of gold. The nails for putting the things together. He even made the nails out of gold. We'd say, my goodness, that's the most expensive nails ever. But you know, I don't think those were as expensive as the ones that went through the wrists and the feet. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the same, the same kind of a picture. Man, the gold nails, that, that is marvelous, beautiful, 
It's the same symbolism today. Some of us put a, a cross that's made out of nails around our necks. Why? Because it has value to us. It's a, it's an incredible, wonderfully beautiful form of worship when we consider the nails that hung our Lord and Savior up makes Him our sacrifice. It says in verse 10, In the most holy place He made two cherubim fashioned by a carving and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim, 20 cubits in overall length. So the wings are 30 feet long. This is not a little bitty cherubim. So in the Holy of Holies, which is 30 foot square, 30 foot by 30 foot, 30 foot, 30 foot, plus 45 feet high, you have cherubim. The two cherubim aren't looking outward as though they're receiving worship. The two cherubim, if we said, like if this speaker right here is the... The ark, the two cherubim were facing the ark, looking down at the ark, and their wings are 30 feet long. One is, is, uh, almost touching the wall or touching the wall. We'll see it in a minute. And the other at an angle going over the top of the ark, almost touching the other ones, which is going the other way from the wall all the way up at an angle over the ark of the covenant. So the ark of the covenant is covered by the wings of these two cherubim bent over the ark in an attitude of worship. So the angels, they, they, weren't, they weren't put there for people to worship them. They're shown as a symbol worshiping over the ark of the covenant, which is the throne of God, which speaks of the presence of, of Jesus Christ. Every aspect of it pointing to Him. It says, uh, touching one was five cubits, I'm sorry, touching the wall of the room and the other wing was five cubits uh, touching the wing from the other cherub. So wing to corner, wing to corner, overlooking the Ark of the Covenant. The wings of these cherubim span 20 cubits overall. And they stood on their feet and they faced inward. And he made a veil of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen and wove cherubim into it. Blue spoke of heaven. Purple. The purple speaking of royalty. The crimson speaking of His blood. And the fine linen, that's white. For He has washed our sins out. White as snow. Everything points to Christ. Also, He made in front of the temple two pillars. You see those two pillars? They don't hold anything up. They're just standing there, right? Those two pillars had a name. Bible trivia... You may be asked the question, what were the names of the pillars of the temple? Well, here's where it says, two pillars, 35 cubits high. The capital was on top of each of them was five cubits. He made wreaths of chain work. Remember, that speaks of the, the attitude of unity. Chains hold us together. And put them on top of the pillars. And he made a hundred pomegranates to put on the wreaths of the chain work. So you have fruitfulness again, symbolized with the chains, the unity holding us together. When we are together, we are fruitful. That's the body, speaking of the body of Christ, the body of Christ and his fruitfulness by our unity. Jesus said, they'll know you are my disciples. How? <clears throat> by the way you love one another. An interesting challenge. Total side note has nothing to do with the temple. So why say it? I don't know. I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I had a challenge. Uh, there was a guy who told a story. And in his story, he said, that a fellow who was really involved in gang activity, big time gang banger, he got saved and he got baptized. And man, this guy was an incredible story. People are really checking this dude out. And man, he is, he is like he's on fire for the Lord, but oh, a few months and they're not seeing him so much. And some of the guys went to go visit him and say, what's going on, man? We haven't seen you around. What's going on? He says, you know, it's, it's my fault, really. He said... You know, I had this idea when, when I give my life to Christ and when I was baptized and became a part of the family of God, that it would be like the gang. Well, we have each other's back and, and it would be family like, like that was. He said, I, I don't know. I, I probably had the, the wrong idea. The guy telling the story said, I don't think he's got the wrong idea. I think we do. That's how the church is supposed to be. 
family. Bearing one another's burden. Having all things in common. Having each other's back. A better example of family should not be a gang. A gang should not be a better example of family than the church. If it is, the church is broke. Fix it. That shouldn't be the way. There should be unity and fruitfulness and the ability to care and love for one another in the body, even to a greater degree than the gang families on the street. That's how I think Jesus intended for the body of Christ to be. Well, we see these pictures here. He set up the pillars before the temple on the right hand and one on the left. He called the one on the right hand, Yaquin. And he called the one on the left, Boaz. Yaquin means Yahweh establishes. Yahweh, the name of God. Yah establishes. That's the one, that, as we're looking at it, on the left side. And the one on the right side, Boaz. In him is strength. Yahweh establishes in him is strength. Those two pillars served only one purpose. Memorial stones. You guys know what memorial stones are? You ever had a memorial stone in your life? For example, you ever been somewhere with somebody super special? Maybe a girlfriend, a boyfriend out and had a picnic out in the middle of the woods somewhere. And you went over to a tree and you scratched your name in it. You know, Jackie plus Kathy, little heart around it. That's a memorial stone. A memorial stone is a place I can always go back and to remember the blessing of the purpose behind which it was made. When the children of Israel first crossed the Jordan River, as they came into the promised land, they set up memorial stones. You remember? Twelve stones in a big old heap. So that whenever they passed that way, they would tell their children how God brought them from slavery into the promised land. A reminder of the stuff God had done for them. So those two pillars serve as a reminder, memorials, that Yahweh establishes. He's the one who put us here. And in Him is strength, not in me. It's about Him. The picture of the two pillars that are set as as memorials in front. They didn't hold nothing up. They just stood there. Nothing was set on top of them. These are, this is the temple. Those so we look at this, I'm going to take you through it real quick. You entered in from this side. I'll come over here. You entered in from this side. It's kind of interesting because when you entered into the tabernacle, as you came through the front, you had to walk through the tribe of Judah. You guys remember where the Messiah came from, right? He's the lion of what? The tribe of Judah, right? You had to enter through a door made of the same material as the front door, as the, as the veil. All that points to Christ. The first thing you came to was the place of sacrifice. The altar. On this picture, it's stone. In a minute, you're going to see that, that, that Solomon didn't make the first one out of stone. And it's way bigger than that. <clears throat> then over here to the left, you have the bronze labor. That's where the priests could wash their hands. You know, when you're sacrificing a lot of animals, it's bloody work. So, we wash our hands in the water, symbolizing we wash our hands in the water of the Word. The Lord said, you are clean, all of you, by the Word that I have spoken to you. The cleansing power of Jesus Christ. Washing our sins away. Though your sins were as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Yet a several other smaller labors on the side so that the other priests would have places to wash as well. Place of sacrifice, place of cleansing, walk into the holy place, place of prayer, speaking of God's provision, the table of the showbread, and the menorahs, the light stands. Light stands would be on the left. If I was facing the Holy of Holies, the lights are here, the showbread here, the gold altar right in front of me, the place of offering prayer. Every single morning and evening. That's what they would do. So this is a model of what Solomon built. Next we're going to look at the furniture. So let's go to the next slide and I'll let you see that bronze altar. 
says, Moreover, he made a bronze altar. Twenty cubits was its length. Twenty cubits its width. Ten cubits its height. It's thirty by thirty, thirty foot by thirty foot, fifteen feet tall, made out of bronze. Bronze. Not wood. Not stone. Bronze. You remember that the scripture tells us that David had more bronze than he could count. He had so much bronze he didn't even weigh it and tell you how much. He said, beyond measure, bronze. Bronze speaks of judgment. In order for us to enter into a relationship with Christ, our sins must be judged. So the altar was made out of bronze. The bronze altar, the place of judgment, the place where the lamb would die and take upon him the sins of the people. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Built out of bronze. Look how big it is. You have a scale there in the picture. You see the man standing on it. It's a big place. Lots of room for lots of sacrifice. It would be a very busy place come Passover, wouldn't it? Very busy place in the morning and evening sacrifice. The ancient altar. Down here in the corner, you see the symbol right here. This is the bronze altar that was made for the tabernacle. See the difference? Lots bigger. Still made of the same material. Bronze, speaking of judgment. He also made the sea of cast bronze. The sea, that was the, the, the laver. They called it the sea where you wash your hands. You, you guys with me? He made the sea of cast bronze. Same thing. Speaks of judgment. Sins judged. We are cleansed. Washed by the, by the blood of Christ. He made the sea of cast bronze. Ten cubits. From one brim to the other. So that's 15 feet across. That's the place where they're washing their hands. 15 feet across. 45 feet in circumference. Uh, it's completely round. The height was 5 cubits. And the line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. And under it was the likeness of oxen. Encircled uh, it around. 10 uh, to a cubit all the way around the sea. Oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast. This is again solid bronze. If you go back one, Cindy, we can see that the, the symbol over here, you'll see those little critters sticking out from under that, that bowl of water. You guys see it there? Those are the oxen upon whose back the, the, the uh, sea sat. The sea, the place uh, where they were cleansed. It stood on 12 oxen, three looking north, Three looking west, three looking south, three looking east. The sea was set on them, and their back parts were inward. So the back parts of the oxen, underneath, just as that that, that artist uh, laid it out. He also made ten labors. You see five on this side, there would also have been five on the other side. Uh, Five on the right side, five on the left. To wash in them such things as they offered for burnt offerings, they would wash in them. But the sea was for the priests to wash in. And he made ten lampstands of gold according to their design and set them in the temple, five on the right, five on the left. So they had the lampstands inside. Now, in the tabernacle there was just one. But I want you to understand the lampstand and the the incredible picture of the lampstand. The lampstand was made of one vine, one straight pole. On that one single vine was placed six branches. Three on each side, right? One, two, three. One, two, three. Right? Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. If we count all the branches, what do you come up with? Six. What is the number of man? Six. How is man made complete when he is attached to the vine? How many is there? Seven. What is seven? The number of perfection or completion. Man is made complete when he is attached to the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. If we're not attached to the vine, we can do nothing. We've got to be attached to the vine. What is the whole purpose of that menorah? To shine forth light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. To show forth the light of Christ. What's our job? 
What's our job in the church in Revelation chapter 1? What is the symbol of the church used in Revelation chapter 1? Jesus is walking in the midst of what? Seven golden lampstands. Because we're all supposed to be reflecting the light of Christ, aren't we? We're all, and how do we do that? By the oil of who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the church allows us to bear forth light. That's the same picture he used. Ten of them they used in the temple. One is what they used in the tabernacle. Here's the interesting note. When we were there this last time, if you walk through Jerusalem, there's a place where they have a golden menorah and it's covered with a glass case. Or I don't know if it's glass. It's covered with a case. You can't get to it. You can't touch it. But it's gold. And when we went and looked at it, I went and saw we were at the Temple Institute where they have all these things we're reading about. The Temple Institute's got them made. They're ready. They're ready for a temple. They just don't have one. So all that stuff's made. So I'm looking at the menorah and our guide's there and I asked the guide. I says, hey, I thought the Bible said that they were supposed to be hammered out of pure gold. Because the beating that Jesus received, it speaks of the hammering of that gold into the menorah. So they hammered it. They didn't pour it, you know what I mean? And it wasn't molded. It was hammered. And the guide says, you're right, it's supposed to be hammered. And I said, but this looks like it's molded. And he says, it is. It was molded. Well, how come he didn't hammer it? So we don't know how to do it. The best, and by the way, Jewish scientists are pretty smart guys. You don't even want to start talking about how many countries or how many companies that we buy their technology or are founded by them. Don't even want to begin to, to have that idea. But there... They don't have a craftsman who could do what Bezalel did all the way back at the time of Moses. They can't do what he did. They can't do what this guy did with Solomon. Where's the menorah today? Well, you want my opinion? It's in the Vatican. That's my guess. Because the last time we see the menorah is on the Arch of Titus. Titus Vespasian conquered Jerusalem and they built an arch in memory of this victory. And you know what's prominent on that arch as the guys are marching across the arch? You know what they're carrying? The menorah. You can see it. So we know it went to Rome. There's things probably in the Vatican storehouse we can only begin to imagine. I'm very doubtful that they'll let you walk around in the stores of their treasury. <laughs> but they got a lot of stuff in there. I would just like a couple of hours walking through their treasure room and see see all the things that they have in there. But they made ten of them. Uh, ten of the menorah in the temple. Uh, goes on and says also um, where'd I go? Okay. Um, he made ten lampstands, gold, according to their design. Set them in the temple, five on the right, five on the left. He also made ten tables. Place them in the temple, five on the right, five on the left. Again, speaking of provision, the, temp, the, the tables of the showbread. He made one hundred bowls of gold. Man, there's all this stuff. It's a, can't even believe how beautiful Solomon's temple must have been. It had to be unreal. Unreal how this looked. But what do we see here in chapter 4? Listen, it begins with the place of sacrifice. It moves to the place of cleansing. From there to the point of enlightenment. From there to the place of provision. As you work your way through, all of it speaking of going deeper and deeper in our relationship with Christ. We first come, we come to the place of sacrifice. Then we come to the place of cleansing. Then we come to the place of enlightenment where the light of the Lord is beginning to open our eyes. We come to the place of provision. Every step closer, further into the temple was a deeper point in relationship and worship with God. Let's go to the third one, and we'll look at the, the implements, um, the furnishings. These are the furnishings of the tabernacle, but in essence, we're talking about the, the same things. We talk about them, there's just more of them in the temple. 
he says, Furthermore, he made the court of the priests and the great court of the doors of the court, and he overlaid these doors with bronze. He set the sea on the right side toward the southeast. And Huram made the pots and the shovels and the bowls. So Huram finished doing the work that he was supposed to do for King Solomon for the house of God. The two pillars and the bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals which were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on the pillars. He made carts and he made labors for the carts. One sea and twelve oxen under it, all the pots and the shovels and the forks and all their articles. Huram, his master craftsman, made a burnished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Sukkoth and Zeredah. And Solomon had all these articles made in great abundance that the weight of the bronze uh, was not determined. They had so much, they didn't even weigh it. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of God, the altar of God, the place of prayer, and the tables on which was the showbed bread, the place of provision, and the lampstands and their lamps, a place of enlightenment to to burn with the prescribed manner in the front of the inner sanctuary, with flowers and lamps and wick trimmers of gold, of purest gold, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, the censers of pure gold. As for the entry of the sanctuary, its inner doors in the most holy place, and the doors of the main hall of the temple were gold. Man, that's a lot of building. That's a lot of extravagance. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of effort put into worship, isn't it? We imagine putting that much effort into worship today? C.S. Lewis said, you will praise what you enjoy. If we enjoy the Lord, David, it was not a labor for him to amass all that gold. It was a joy, right? It wasn't labor for him to put all those plans together and all the divisions of the priests. It was a labor of joy. Why? Because he loved the Lord. Man, he lived for him. He lived for him. That should be our attitude still. Not a ritual, not a you come to church and you do this and you do that. And we, you know, we do the things we do. That's how we do them. But but that it's an attitude. Worship is not what you do here. Worship is your life. Your life is worship. How do you live your life? How do you spend your days? How do you, how do you talk? How do you talk about the Lord? How do you spend time with Him throughout the week? All of that is your worship. How we worship. Are the nails in the, our building, in our temple, in our, in our place of worship, are the nails made out of gold? Are they, are they so special, every aspect of, of it, that we can't help wherever we go to talk to people about the Lord because, man, He means so much to me. He means so much to me that it's not that I'm worried about offending this dude. I just love God so much. I want to make sure I talk about the things I love with Him. So I'll be happy to talk to him about football. I'll be happy to talk to him about what happened on Monday night football game or what happened on Sunday night football. I might even be happy to tell him about where the hunting is going well. I might even tell him about my last fishing trip and the fish that I caught. Because all of those things are things that I enjoy. If I enjoy God, it's no different. Is it? If I delight in the Lord, isn't it the same? If I delight in the Lord like I delight in hunting or fishing or football or whatever my thing is, man, won't I, won't I have extravagant worship? Won't I have a willingness to talk to people about Him? And I love my wife. I'm more than happy to tell things about my wife, to share the stories about my things my wife has done and stuff that's gone on in her life. When I love my kids and I get together and talk with people, don't we talk about our kids? We say, oh, let me show you pictures of my grandkids. Let me show you all the, why? Because we enjoy them, because we love them, because we delight in them. 
Shouldn't it be the same? Shouldn't it be the same that I, that I delight in God that way? If it's not, look, it's not a, an attitude of condemnation. The Bible tells very clearly in Romans chapter 8, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not about condemnation. It's about taking a look inside of me and seeing what's broken and fix it. It's about looking at that guy that was a gangbanger and not blaming him for the fact that the church wasn't a family around him, but realizing we got to do a better job. I'm not looking for somebody else to blame, but looking at myself and saying, what's wrong in my relationship with Christ? What can I, what can I do better in my relationship with Christ? How can I cling to Him in a greater degree? If I don't delight in the Lord, it's not a surprise to God. Don't keep it a secret. Don't say, oh, I don't want God to know that I don't delight in Him. Guess what? He already knows. What does God expect us to do about it? He expects us to come to Him. Lord, help me. I want to delight in You. I want to be satisfied with You and, and, and who You are. I want to know You and the fellowship of Your suffering and the power of Your resurrection. If by any means I might attain. Wasn't that the attitude of Paul? That's his prayer. That's his prayer, that I would have that, that I would desire that. Because I think if that's our attitude, I think, I think we're building the place of worship in our lives with gold. See, the Bible tells 1 Corinthians 15 that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a judgment of believers. And what's he going to do? He's going to take our lives and cause it to pass through the fire. And he says, whatever materials you use to build, if they're wood, hay, and stubble, what happens to them? They burn away. What's left? Gold, silver, precious stones. What do you build with? What are you building with? What am I building with? What am I building in the place of worship? The greatest... Uh, I, I don't even know a better way to say it. The, the most wonderful, incredible, beautiful being in all the universe. For any other being to say that they were the greatest being would be presumptuous or prideful unless you are the greatest being and then for you to say i live for my glory that's just stating the truth isn't it the glory the majesty the beauty of god it's all true it's all true does that in some way does it does it measure does it measure up the temple in me we you can't see it I can make it look good on the outside. What's it look on the inside? Is it built with wood? Is it overlaid with fine gold? Because that's the stuff that's going to stay, that's going to last, that's vital, that's real. And if C.S. Lewis is right, if I really enjoy God, then I've got to break forth in spontaneous praise. And I'm going to want to talk to people about Him. And I'm going to be building with golden nails. And I'm going to be furnishing it with with things of gold and of silver and, 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 and ornate, fancy stuff because well, that's just how much I love Him. I love Him extravagantly. I want to give Him everything I can. Everything I can. Was at the, I was at a thing recently and they, they showed the end. You guys seen Schindler's List, right? The end of Schindler's List. You guys remember it? It always haunts me, that ending. Not because of Schindler and, and what he did, and, and I think that's a great part of the story. But if you remember the ending of Schindler's List, Schindler, the, the people, the Jews, a thousand, I think there was a thousand of them, wasn't it, that he saved, they come to him and they, and they, give, him, uh, they, they give him something. I don't remember what it was. And they, they basically tell him they're thankful, right? Thank you for, for you saved us. And, and he's looking at them and he looks down and he starts to weep. 
And he says, oh, why did I keep that car? Why did I keep the car? I could have got rid of the car. I, I could have saved, I don't know, five more if I got rid of the car, ten more if I got rid of the car. Why did I keep this watch? I should have got rid of the watch. You guys know what I'm talking about? I don't want to come to the end of my life and stand before the God of the universe and feel that way. I don't want to stand there and say, oh, why didn't I? I want to run. I want to fight. I want to do all the things God's asking me to do for His glory so I can stand on that day. So I can stand on that day knowing I spent my life, the only thing I really have to spend. It's not about your money. It's not about anything else. It's about your life. What did I spend my life on? Because the things that I spent for Christ, those are going to last, aren't they? Those things are really going to matter. And that's what we see in the temple. You see all the time and the effort that they're putting into it. Why? Because it all points to Christ. Is Jesus worth it? What's He worth to you? Is He worth more time? More effort? More? I think all of us would probably say, yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and, and so what do we need to do with that? It's not to be condemned. It's to go to the Lord and say, God, help me. Look, there's nothing I'm ever going to do that He doesn't empower me to do. I can't do it by willpower. I can't do it by power of my mind. i got to do it by the power of His Holy Spirit. i got to have Him. So i got to come to Him and say, God, you got to do it through me. Help me. That's what He wants. He is seeking those worshipers who will worship Him how? Spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. And He's calling you and I to be those worshipers. 